Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. What's it like to be the voice of the MLB for ESPN Radio? We'll find out about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 32 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to another installment of The Bridge Sports Podcast, coming to you Wednesday or Thursday nights of each week. And what an episode it is slated to be. I know, I know, I took last week off, needed to get a couple things in order, and hey, this is a lot better than what happened last year when I pretty much took off the summer, because as you know, as sports fans, there really isn't much to discuss. However... Fortunately, I have more than enough to discuss a year into this, so I don't have too many excuses to continue missing shows. Last week, took some time to get some segments in order and bring in some new additions to make the bridge that much better. For starters, I'm very excited to introduce a new way for you, the loyal listeners of the bridge, to be able to interact with the show. I now have my very own The Bridge show number for you to be able to call or text and interact with me with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, whatever you have in store for me. The new number for the show is 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. So put that into your phones and throughout the week, whenever something strikes your fancy that you might want to discuss or let me know about, you now can do so through leaving me a voicemail or sending me a text message. How exciting is that? You can do it if you happen to be actually listening to the show, or you can just do it on a whim, but I would love to hear from you through a voicemail, through a text message. Now, don't be a dick about it. Send me something that I could potentially play or read on air. All I'm asking for is your name and where you're from, and then you can go off on whatever you'd like to say. Keep it a little brief. I've got things to do on here. I can't play five minutes of a story or a question that you might want to say, but I will give you some allotted time. Make it good, make it count, and we'll move on from there. As an example of what I'm looking for, we already received our first call to the bridge before this show was even put out and anyone knew about the number. And no, it wasn't my mother, so we can cross her off the list. It also wasn't any family member doing it. So let's take a listen and hear what this caller had to say. Hey, Tony and Mike. Oh, this isn't that PCI segment, Psychics? Anyway, this is Eddie from New York City. I was just wondering what you think about the Yankees at the trade deadline. Will they be sellers or buyers? 
Great question, Eddie from New York, who you could listen to on this program way back in the archives of the show in the beginning episodes. I don't remember what number it is, but he's there. I think that's a great question now because we're getting closer and closer to those potential decisions being made. I think they should be sellers. I don't think it would hurt them to get rid of some of their better pieces like Araldus Chapman or even Carlos Beltran or guys that could be let go that you're not going to have a future with after this season or next season. You can bring in players that will have a bright future to go along with all the young talent you have in AAA and through your minor league system and even in the infield that you have now. Some of the guys that you can watch play for the next five to ten years that could possibly bring the team success. If I had a sell, sell, sell on my soundboard, I would play it now, but this sound will just have to do. Anyway, that's how you could reach me through a voicemail such as that. Or if you're podcast shy, feel free to just send a text message with any of your questions or comments from what we might have spoken about in a particular episode or what is currently going on in the world of sports that you'd like me to address in the future. That's 929-BRIDGE-7, 929-274-3437. Save it and fire away. Another thing I wanted to bring to the show was a new segment. I don't really have segments. I have an opening monologue where I rant and rave about whatever's happening and then tell you about this week's guest. But on top of the opening monologue where I rant and rave about something, I figured why not rant and rave in a different type of way in a segment that I like to call sports news read like real news. Now, if you're having problems following that, it's a brief segment that will feature a significant story from the past week, but will be delivered in a similar way that many news organizations deliver their news. You know that fake voice that news reporters put on or news anchors put on when you turn on your local news or listen to the news on the radio? There's a certain type of diction and way of speaking that those anchors love to use when they deliver the news to you, but it's not a way that you speak to anyone in typical day-to-day conversation. I definitely think we could have some fun with this. So without further ado, here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. New England Patriot quarterback and future Hall of Famer Tom Brady announced via Facebook that he will accept his four-game suspension for Deflategate and not pursue further action with the U.S. Supreme Court. That decision comes more than 14 months after the NFL punished him for allegedly conspiring to tamper with the air pressure of footballs in a conference championship game. His decision was announced shortly after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit rejected the appeal of suspension. However, Brady did grant the NFL Players Association the permission to continue fighting his four-game suspension, further continuing this ridiculous saga that has literally taken years to decide. As of now, Brady will be barred from having any contact with the team during the first four weeks of the regular season, with backup Jimmy Garoppolo expected to start in his absence. 
Brady will be eligible to return to the game action when the Patriots visit the Cleveland Browns in week five of the regular season. That said, if you think this is the last we hear of Brady and Deflategate, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Reporting for The Bridge, I'm John Lund with Sports News Red Like Real News. This week, I was fortunate enough to be joined by John Boog Shambi, who is best known as the play-by-play voice of Major League Baseball on ESPN Radio. He's done radio with the then Florida Marlins. He's done radio with the Atlanta Braves before eventually settling in now at ESPN. And he does Sunday night baseball on the radio. You might see him on Wednesday night baseball on television. He's been on your TV on baseball tonight. He often does college basketball broadcasts in the offseason as well, and it was certainly a pleasure to learn more about how he got into broadcasting, how he was able to work his way up to ESPN, as well as some of the different ways he's trying to make baseball fun again. For starters, he once wrote a piece for Fangraphs about how he tries to introduce sabermetrics into his broadcast without making things sound like a math class, and you could read that story in my show notes. He's also recently been making appearances on Dan Lebitard's National Sports Radio Show, where listeners have been able to send in their home run calls or other witty play-by-play phrases that Boog might use throughout the broadcast. I've been trying to come up with a cool home run call for the past several days, and I can't do it. So if you have one, feel free to call or text 929-BRIDGE7. Or tweet it out at Lebitard Show and use the hashtag Boog and maybe your call will get played either on this show or on a national broadcast on ESPN. You can also follow John on Twitter. He is at Boog Shiambi. That's B-O-O-G-S-C-I-A-M-B-I. And you can also check out some of the specific topics that we're about to get into in this interview and what time you'll find them in the podcast in this week's show notes on either my website at londonbridge.com or on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or the artist John Lund. Unfortunately, there's parts of this interview where the audio is a little bit iffy and it might be a little hard to hear what John is saying. I tried my best to make him a little bit louder at those points and turn us down when that's not necessary so your ears aren't completely blown away. But there's going to be points that might be a little difficult, so I just ask you to bear with me and get the gist of what he's saying and we'll all enjoy being able to talk about baseball. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with John Boog Shiambi. He is the play-by-play voice of MLB on ESPN Radio. You can hear him on Sunday Night Baseball. You might see him on Wednesday Night Baseball or on Baseball Tonight. You've also probably seen or heard him on college basketball broadcasts. And now you get to hear him here. Sir, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing today? I am doing well. What's going on? Well, I'm ready to talk some baseball. Before we get into your career, before we get into baseball, I wanted to get one of the heavy-hitting questions out of the way, right out of the gate. How did you end up getting the nickname Boog? I think it was uh, 1993, and I was working at uh, WQAM in Miami, and... I was uh, I was doing updates, but I was also uh, training to produce. And I came into train with the uh, 
I had literally just been hired there. I was training with the morning show, and uh, one of the guys, Dave Lamont, is from Baltimore. He's a big Orioles fan, you know, and Boog's a big redheaded guy. And I had a mailbox and literally came in that morning. You know, they made reference to it in the next day over my uh, my mailbox. It, instead of it saying John Chomby, it said Boog Powell. And it just kind of stuck. So Dave Lamont gave it to me um, years back. Have you ever had a chance to meet Boog and maybe get his oh, blessing yeah. for that nickname? That, you know, it's funny. The first time that I met him in person, I started to stammer and, you know, try and explain to him that I'd stolen his nickname. But right. I got about halfway through it. And he's like, oh, no, no, I know who you are. Because um, he spends time in the Keys. So he had, he had heard me before. He's about as nice a guy as you possibly uh, you could imagine. And I've, you know, we've done Orioles games. We've actually had him on. Uh, we've been on together during, you know, Orioles games. They actually did like a sneak attack a couple of years ago where he took it out of break, you know, saying, you know, this is the real boob, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he, he's just, he's awesome. He's, he's a lot of fun and just a super, super uh, nice guy. A definite sigh of relief once he was okay with that, I'm sure. I wanted to rewind a little bit back and just talk to you about how you got your passion for baseball. I know a lot of older broadcasters, I'm not putting you in this category, but when you talk to a lot of older broadcasters, they talk about sitting next to the radio in the living room and really getting a passion for radio. How did you really get started as far as baseball and a love for the game was concerned and maybe think that this might be something you would pursue later on? Well, I like to play. I mean, I love the sport, you know, but my parents divorced when I was little, but both families were big, big baseball fans. My dad's family, really big Phillies fans. My mom's family, really big Yankee fans. And even, you know, my mom likes baseball. My mom will sit and watch baseball. So, you know, I could, it was just one of those things that just kind of got ingrained in me. I don't know that it was specific at a young age that I necessarily wanted to be a broadcaster. I liked playing, and I was, a, you know, as a kid, I was a decent player. I remember my my grandparents went away on a cruise. Um, I think I was like five, something, five, six, something along those lines. And they were explaining to me what a cruise was. And, you know, what happens, you go out on the water and blah, blah, blah. And they explained the whole thing to me. And when they finished explaining to me, I looked at them. And the only thing I said was, well, how do you get the box scores? <laughs> and they said, you don't. Um, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things. You know, like that, same, that, that same grandparent, actually, when I was doing the Braves, you know, somewhere in 07, 09, he had never been to Camden Yards. So my dad brings him to Camden Yards. And, you know, he's checking it out. Um, and he, they come up to the booth in like the seventh or the eighth inning and, you know, I'm doing my thing and like, I want to see my, my grandfather to see me, you know, doing my thing, broadcasting the game. Well, he walks into the booth and, and the booth we were in, it's a big booth and there was a monitor kind of tucked off to the side and had the Phillies game on. And he just grabs a chair and just plops down in front of the monitor. And like, I'm over there working like, Hey, I'm over here. What are you doing? And he just sits there and locks into the Phillies game. So I mean, it just, I, I think, you know, my family has just always, you know, loved baseball. I actually, at this past All-Star game, my dad and my brother, and a couple of my friends came out. Um, my dad had never seen the All-Star game before. So, I, you know, it's a, a passion that I've had for a long time. 
And I know, like many broadcasters, you got your start in college at Boston College on WZBC. A couple notable names there as well. What made you decide to get into that and start pursuing that passion? What was that experience like as far as lighting your sports broadcasting fire and getting you started? I think I always knew that when I got to college that that was a pretty good place for me to start. I thought that I would have some type of, you know, ability uh, in that, you know, whether it was knowledge or whatever, my voice was decent. Um, and yeah, as soon as I got on campus, I went over to WZBC and uh, I met Bob Wachusen and Joe Tessitore became, you know, good friends with them. I actually, Bob and I were roommates in Miami. Uh, he was the one that really helped get me the job at uh, WQAM in Miami. So yeah, we just, we did play by play. We did, uh, sports talk shows. It was a lot of fun. Um, but you got a chance to be on the air and learn how to do it. And that was, uh, that was pretty crucial. Could you give a cliff notes version of after you graduate, how you get those first couple of jobs to get your feet wet and get into the industry. And then that leads up to eventually getting that gig with the Florida Marlins who win the world series, like right when you're hired. So I guess they did a good thing by bringing you on board. So I went to WQAM, as I mentioned, and I was the one thing the, the first gig that I had was in a place called WESB or a family friend I went to Bradford, Pennsylvania, home of the Zippo Lighter Factory. Sure. And, you know, I did news, sports, DJ, board up. I did the whole thing. But, again, I got a chance to be on the air, so I was getting a chance to get better. So when I got to QAM, I already had, a, you know, at least some on-air experience. So they let me do updates. Um, they let me produce. And eventually they got gave me my own talk show, which was really the thing that I thought that, that I wanted to be doing. But I got a little, I don't know whether I would say bored, but I started during the Marlins season in 94. I started at night going into the, an empty broadcast booth and just doing games into a tape recorder. And I did that for a little bit. And eventually, you know, after I had what I thought was something that was, you know, <laughs> mildly listenable, uh, <laughs> I passed it out to some people. I wanted some critiques. Uh, I got them uh, at that point as well. I was I started to kind of use the the Marlins Panthers uh, broadcasting director uh, Dean Jordan as a little bit of a mentor, and you know gave him the tapes. I got a job in Boise, Idaho, um, with the Boise Hawks. I did the summer of '96 for short season A, and which was amazing, a, a great great experience and when i came back uh for the following season the marlins were changing up their their broadcasting structure and they were gonna split tv between dave o'brien and joe angel and they were going to have a fourth position that was going to be only radio and it was going to be kind of pre-game post-game in-game scores and it really developed into um, a little bit of play-by-play as well until, you know, probably by 99, that was 97, by 99, um, 
you know, I was I was doing every single game. What do you think some of the bigger differences are compared to being a national radio broadcaster or as you were with the Florida Marlins and then with the Braves for three years? You're the team guy, so you're more immersed with the players. You're more immersed with the personnel. Things might be a little bit easier because you're able to know so much about the players and talk to them and be open with them. What are some of the biggest differences from being the guy with some of those teams as compared to what you're doing now? You know, the, the everyday grind of it is just different. You know, you're in, like, when you're in the traveling party, it, it, you operate in this bubble, and it's really cool. But, you know, when you're doing every game and you're traveling, you know, the players see you and you see them more than, you know, you see your family. Right. So you're in this bubble, and... You know, your your world is the Florida Marlins and not as much kind of, you know, baseball. It's it's specific to that team. And I try and tell people who are fans, you know, if you were a Yankee fan and you went and did radio or worked with the Red Sox where you traveled and flew on the team play, like you become a Red Sox fan. Like it just it's just the way it is, you know, you're you become immersed in that culture and I think that, you know, from a national standpoint, you're kind of parachuting in. You know, the one thing I really like about my gig now is that the games, you know, are fresh so that they're, you know, they're usually, you know, a one-off where you're going in on a Wednesday, you're doing the Giants and the Red Sox, and then you leave. So, um, you know, you don't want to turn it into the Super Bowl to be sure, but you also... It, it just keeps things fresh, and you get to see multiple teams. So, um, I, I mean, I love my time with the Marlins and with the Braves, and doing a team is really cool, but I like my game now. Did that take any getting used to as far as the grind is concerned? Because, as you mentioned, you're pretty much part of the team. So not only are you doing the home series, you're traveling to different parts of the country to do the away games. And in a way, it's similar to that grind that a baseball player has to face with the travel and the hours put in. Did that take any getting used to, or did that kind of become a little bit easier as you got more involved with the teams? It just becomes the routine. It just kind of becomes your way of life, you know? You don't really have – you just adapt. It's a bizarre life. I mean, I, I will tell you, it, it really is a bizarre life in terms of – you know, you play in L.A. one night and then you fly to Texas and you're getting into the hotel at four in the morning, you know, and there's somebody at the hotel there to greet greet us at four in the morning and, you know, the room keys and you're getting your luggage. It's just, it's a really, yeah, it's just, it's an odd, it's an odd life, but it gets, it can, it's just real routine oriented and it can very much, you know, we joke about it, but it's, you know, it's like that old commercial in the way that it, it can feel at times is, you know, time to make the donuts. Like that's, you know, again, you, and it's awesome, but it's just, you, know, you got to remember that, you know, by, by rule, you know, you can play up to as many as 21 straight days. So, I mean, it can feel like on and on. Um, yeah, that, that you just never stop. Would you say that you were 
more recognizable or more approached when you were part of the Marlins or the Braves or how you are now when you're on the national stage? Much more people get to see you when you're doing your games or listen to you when you're doing your games. Has that changed at all as far as maybe the fan interaction? Um, ooh, that's a good question. I think, I think that on a local stage, what happens is, you know, you, once you get some time, you connect, you know, it's, you connect with the local fans and it's personal. So I, I think that the relationship is kind of, is kind of different. I think that, you know, there's an element where, you know, I think that as good a broadcast as there is in the Giants and, you know, Kruk and Kite, those two guys, I think that the fans see them almost like, you know, hey, our buddies are on TV. Right. Because they've cultivated that thing. And I think that that's, you know, kind of the difference between local and national is the, you know, the connectivity between the fans and the broadcasters happens on a local front. So, um, I'm not entirely sure, you know, how to identify or, or necessarily even answer the question, you know, so specifically nationally, you know, you, I, the, the one thing that, you know, baseball tonight doing that for a few years, because your face is on TV so much there, um, I would say more people started to recognize me, but it's more connective uh on a on a local front with uh with fans. I, I will tell you that I try I certainly try to make our our shows on TV and radio have a little more of a local feel. I I I do want I do at least strive to I I like people on Wednesdays to know that it's you know me, Sut and Doug and know what to expect and feel comfortable uh, in that regard. The same way, you know, Singy and I have been doing it a long time on the radio, just you listening to a couple of your friends. So right. that is kind of what I'm striving for. But because we're not doing it every single day, and your team may not be the game that we're broadcasting, you're not always going to get, you know, repeat listeners or viewers per se. But uh, I think that, you know, the local broadcast are, in my estimation, you know, more personal to the fans. When it comes to returning to ESPN in 2010 full-time, you now have worn many hats with them. Is there a brief summary of what you can tell the listeners about what some of your different responsibilities are now and some of the different places they can hear you or see you on TV? You know, my game gig is I'm the you know, the voice of the radio. So we do Saturdays and Sundays on the radio. Uh, you know, I'll do the playoffs through the championship series. Shulman does one championship series. I'll do the other championship series right. on the radio. And then he does the world series. And then uh, I do Wednesday nights on TV. I'll do a little bit of baseball tonight. Like I'm doing baseball tonight, Monday and Tuesday next week. Uh, and, and then I do the College World Series, split that with Ravi, and college basketball. I do, um, you know, usually some one-off games. I usually do a tournament. Last couple of years, I've done Maui. Right. And I'm in the Big 12. 
when yeah. it comes to broadcasting a game on the radio or broadcasting a game on TV, what are some of the biggest differences between the two that you might keep in the back of your mind when you're doing a broadcast? Because I know there's different audiences and there's different things you have to talk about. How are you able to balance both and handle that? Well, I think I start with this. On radio, I feel like my job is infinitely more technical. My first responsibility and my main responsibility is letting people know what's happening. Because if I don't, they don't know. That's really it. That's the, that's the main thing. So my ability to describe really accurately but efficiently, um, that's the first place I'm starting on radio. You know, and then you're trying to have some fun. You're trying to inform, but first and foremost, you're trying to, you know, paint the picture, man. That's the the biggest, the biggest key is trying to, to, so people can see it in their, in their mind's eye. Um, That is the most crucial element of doing it on the radio. On TV, you know, I, I think that I'm, I'm kind of the, I guess the best way I would describe it is I'm kind of the, you know, the, the point guard, um, which is good comedy. My side is a point guard, but I, (laughs) it's, but you know, that's really it is I'm, I'm, you know, I, I had the ball in my hands and my job is to tee up Sutcliffe and Glanville. I, I think that the two, you know, we have an amazing crew on, on Wednesdays, Jeff finds our producer, Jimmy Platts, our director, um, and we've been together a while. And so I think that the two main goals that we strive for on Wednesdays are we want it to be smart and we want it to be fun. And I think, you know, we, you know, on TV, they let me influence content, which I do. I do like a lot. Um, you know, I like the sabermetric stuff. So I, you know, I definitely push that content. I think in working with, with Rick and Doug, the thing that's fun is we just come at it very differently. And if, if you were to sit there, if there was some way for us to write down every single piece of prep for the game, the thing you find is that for each game, you kind of send us all off and ask us to prepare. We prepare very differently. There'd be very little overlap in terms of what we each would prepare for a game because we just come at it differently. You know, on TV, I'm I'm definitely trying to be playful and and have a good time, and I and I just want it to be smart. And then on radio, you know, Chris and I are trying to make sure we tell people what what happens, and we want it to be a fun, comfortable listen. I'm interested to know what your typical preparation is like now. Like saying you're about to cover a Sunday night baseball game between the Red Sox and the Yankees in the Bronx. When are you getting to the park? What types of tidbits are you writing down to go to during the game? How much time does it take you to write up that beautiful looking box score that you usually put together? I'm just interested to know how much preparation actually goes into the game before the first pitch is even thrown. So we'll do Saturday as well. So you, I usually get to the park. I'm usually at the park, you know, three to four hours before first pitch is roughly, you know, what we're doing. I think that, you know, as the season goes on, the prep gets easier. Right. Um, because, like, 
Yankees have already done the Yankees, and I've already done the Red Sox a bunch of times this year. And right. I've already done the Yankees against the Red Sox this year. So, so it really is a little more about let's check in on what's been happening lately, like who's swinging well uh, going into the break, who wasn't. I mean, I was just in San Diego, so... You know, again, some of my prep is built in in terms of all the information that I already have, you know, stored in terms of Betts and Bogarts and Bradley and all the stuff that we have on Big Poppy. So I, I think that the, the preparation process in MLB is it's just a fluid one. You know, you're getting up most days and, you know, you're looking at box scores and stats and, um, you know, I've usually watched some games and, you know, I'm checking the highlights, that type of thing. But as the season goes on, they're just kind of, you know, specific things that I'm going to look for and, and focus on pitching matchups and stuff like that. So I can't, I, it's, it'd be hard for me to give you, uh, a, you know, a finite time amount that goes in. Right. Because it's just kind of always happening, you know, like it's kind of this never ending thing where like, you know, I, I mean, just for example, you find, you know, you find a note on Chris Bryant uh, that he's two for whatever against two for 31 and on changeups this year. And I'll send it to my producer and or he'll send it to me and say, we'll use this in a couple of weeks when we're at Wrigley, you know, like we'll update it. Right. Just, you know, that's the type of stuff that's always happening. You see something on Twitter and, you know, you flip that note and then update it. So that's just, that's kind of how you do it. And when you get to the park, you know, you're talking to guys, uh, definitely talk to both managers and just, you know, you pick out different things to try and get little stories and fun stuff to, to humanize guys. Well, if you need any cliff notes for the triple A team for the Yankees, I'm about 15 minutes away. So let me know. I'll run go. down. <laughs> I'm always interested yeah. in this as well. When you're viewing a game, you obviously see things differently than a fan would at home or even differently than how you might watch it if you're in the stands. What are some of the examples of some things you might be looking for? The little intricacies that you need to tell people are happening or some things that might be going unnoticed that you think are interesting and would like to point out to the listeners or viewers? You know, I think, you know, your antenna is just, you're like hyper aware of what's happening. So I think that when I'm watching as a fan, I'm, I'm, I'm just probably watching a, a, t a bit more passively. But when you're watching the game, yeah, you're just on the, on the lookout for, um, you know, different things, whether it's, you know, when you're at home, there's only so many things you can see. Right. Whereas at the game, you know, I have a monitor in front of me and I'm constantly looking at the monitor and then looking on the field. And so if I see a guy reach into his back pocket in the outfield and look at a card, um, which is obviously his defensive positioning card, um, you know, I'll make note of that and I'll actually, if I'm, if the game's on radio, I'll mention it. If the game's on TV, I'll tell our director to have one of the camera guys, you know, looking at, uh, that outfielder and let's catch him doing it live. 
So you're just doing stuff along those lines. You're just trying to pick up little things. I, I will say, you know, I, you know, on TV, you can see it. So I'm not at quite as married to it, but the job of picking up those subtleties, it does naturally happen for me, but that's more in the department of Singleton, Sutcliffe and Glanville, because my main responsibility is still, whether it's radio or TV, here's the pitch. Did he swing? Right. He swung. What happened? Where did the ball go? And that I can't miss. You know what I mean? That, that, that is, <laughs> I have to do that every time. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big, you know, the big thing there, you know, and, and along the way, you're just paying attention. Stuff happens. But, um, first and foremost, I would say that I'm, you know, I'm most married to that, <laughs> you know, here comes the pitch is the, is the right. main thing. What would you say some of your specific techniques are as a broadcaster? Do you have any quotes, I guess you would say, or things that you go to or things you try to say? I know, for example, Vin Scully has said for big moments, he, in a way, likes to drop the mic after a memorable play and just let that natural sound kind of take over and the background yeah. noise do the talking. What are some of the different things along those lines that you've implemented throughout the years and some of those things that you go to during a broadcast? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that I'm in that category. I'm, I'm definitely leaning towards I don't want to over-talk, my, especially you know, on TV. I, I, my stated goal is I want to be efficient and I want to provide information, but yeah, I don't like, you don't want to be the guy that's just talking and talking and talking, like be efficient. You know, you can't at a certain point, if you keep talking, I just think it undercuts the value of the stuff that you're saying, because it just, it's hard to differentiate what's important and what's not important. I, I would characterize myself on TV as more of a minimalist on Radio, the the biggest mechanical piece of advice, the best piece of advice that I ever got was from John Miller years ago. And it's usually something that if people send me tapes in a critique, I will usually pass this along to them. But, you know, describing the game on the radio takes some work, man. It's not it's not easy to, as much as it, it seems like it might. But the words don't just always spill out of your mouth right at this point for me because i've been doing it a while there is there is a little bit of an autopilot to it which is cool that you know somebody hits a ground ball to short it could be a ground ball to short bouncer to short couple of hops to short i don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth necessarily (laughs) um but the one piece of advice that john gave me is and it's very technical it's very mechanical and if you've done it it'll make a lot of sense but the biggest thing is you need to say, here's the pitch before you think you do. Right. Meaning that you can't say, here's the pitch mirroring the pitcher throwing the pitch because his release and ability to throw the ball is faster than your ability to actually. Right. And I know this sounds oddly, it sounds odd and technical, but the point is this. In order for you to put yourself in the best possible position to call the play, the way you want it to sound is, here's the pitch, 
You want to hear, here's the pitch, and then the ball hits the bat. Right. As opposed to somebody saying, here's the pitch, and you can hear the contact underneath the I-T-C-H of the word pitch. Because that'll put you in a position usually where you're chasing the play. Right. So if you say it a little bit sooner so that there's just this tiny, tiny little bit of space for utilizing the sound of the ball hitting the mitt, the ball hitting the bat, and putting yourself in a better position to not chase the play, that's the thing I would say that's helped me the most. And I don't do it perfectly all the time, it's for sure, but but it is something that's always in my head to kind of get me you know, locked back in and put me in a better a better place. And it's not like you can write down a script for what you're going to plan to say when something memorable happens, when a game-winning home run is hit. You can't have a series of scripts in front of you like, okay, if somebody does this in the ninth, this is what I'm going to go with. It just kind of has to come. As far as those moments, are there some that stick out to you as some of your most memorable games or some of your most memorable play calls? One for me that sticks out as a Yankees fan is I know you had the opportunity to be at Derek Jeter's final home game when he had the game winning yeah. hit to right. What have been some of those that might stick out to you as like, wow, it was awesome to be able to be in the booth for that? Yeah, that was that was definitely one. I mean, that was it was funny, man. That one was a weird one because it's all you're thinking about when you go into the ninth inning. You know, is he going to get a chance to win the game? And the way the inning played out, it was like you could just see it coming. I mean, that was cool. That was that would definitely be one of them. That was that was about as as cool and exciting as as it gets. Just and I mean, you talk about it was sort of who's writing the script. It was it was wild. Um, I I got to do uh, 2003 World Series Alex Gonzalez walk off homer against Jeff Weaver in Game Four. And that was, uh, I mean, calling a walk-off homer in the World Series, that was pretty pretty unbelievable. I would say David Ortiz Grand Slam in Game 2 of the 2013 Championship Series against the Tigers, where Torrey Hunter flipped over the wall. That was, uh, that was pretty unbelievable. I got to call Roy Halladay's no-hitter in the postseason. Arietta's no-hitter last year. Yeah, those would be those would be some of the some of the things. I love calling the All Star Game too. I mean, it's I would say as a as an event, it's always been something that I've, that I've really enjoyed. That's not too shabby of a list. As far as the evolution of yourself, when you first got into the business in the late '90s, things were almost completely different than they are now because of the additions of sabermetrics more of a focus on that social media playing a major part now in broadcasting and in radio and then even the competition that you have to face as far as different satellite radio stations and different tv stations what would you say have been some of the biggest challenges that you might have been able to come and how you've been able to evolve with this ever-changing world that we now live in when it comes to broadcasting baseball um man well, the sabermetric stuff is something that just interested me. So, you know, I had somebody give me, a guy who uh, I grew up with gave me the Bill James abstract, like way back in the day, 
So, like, I read some of those, and it definitely interested me. Um, but I would say that I, I really started to get interested in sabermetrics around the exact same time as I started doing games. And, you know, really what I found, I mean, I learned baseball the way most people learn baseball. And so, you know, all these ideas that were kind of counter to what you'd learned, but I didn't have a better argument. So, you know, I just kind of, you know, run, went down the rabbit hole and, you know, now as far as integrating that stuff into the broadcast, I don't want to turn it into math class, but I also want to inform and I also want, you know, like I can't sit here and talk about a guy who's hitting 220 with a 260 on base percentage, but he's got a lot of RBIs and say he's having a great year. Like to me, that's objectively incorrect. Right. So, you know, integrating this stuff in is something that I actually, I feel like I do well. I, I want to make it digestible, but I, I, at a fundamental level, I feel like, look, if teams are not making decisions based on RBIs and runs scored and batting average and wins, they're doing it with more advanced numbers, then we have a responsibility to cover the game the way they're making their decisions. I mean, that's, I think that's a, a simple enough way to put it. You know, and, and then as far as just like the, the whole time that I've been doing it, I, I think, you know, I say this, I think everybody wants to be scully when they start. I think everybody wants to have that ability to write verbal poetry, and it doesn't happen, you know, when we don't all have the thesaurus at our fingertips, and then you got to figure it out. But the one thing that he's always said is he said, you know, he didn't doesn't listen to other broadcasters because back in the day, Red Barber said, you know, you bring something that no one else brings, and that's you. And I think that, you know, the, the place that I've gotten to is just, yeah, I, I think that I'm, I'm comfortable being me on the air. So I think that it, it takes a lot of time, but you just, if you want to know what I'm like as a person or in person, you listen to me on the radio or watch me on TV. That's what I'm like. The, the same jokes that I'd make on the air in the same way that I would be, I think that's what you're, you're striving for. I think you want to be authentic, and that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to pull off. Before I let you get out of here, I wanted to touch on baseball as a whole, not in the booth, but on the diamond. For the All-Star game in general, it seems like most people might have been just listening to you on the radio because, unfortunately, it got the worst TV viewership in All-Star game history with 8.7 million viewers, and the medium age of that was about 54 and a half years old. Why do you think the younger generation might not necessarily be as interested in baseball. I know this was just an exhibition game, obviously, and the home run derby the same, but in general, it seems to be like the medium age of listeners is around that 40 to 50 to 60, that older generation of viewers or listeners, and the younger generations are going elsewhere. Do you put anything on that, maybe as to why those numbers are the way that they are? There are a couple of things. Number one, I'm more interested in the in the median age part of it. I, the, the ratings part of it, I don't worry about that much because, you know, I feel like baseball gets beat up a lot and doesn't get credit for, you know, 
baseball has been so far ahead of the curve in terms of its advanced media. You know, the NFL and the NBA have been way behind MLB as it relates to streaming games. And, I mean, the MLB advanced media arm has been just gigantic in growing the game. But what it's also done is that it's made it a very regional game. And so, because it's every day, which is a lot, man, you know, our society is short attention span theater. I mean, it just, that's where we are now. Right. And, but if you want to watch the Reds and you live in Seattle, you, you can watch the Reds every night. And so, I think that because people have gotten accustomed to it, it becomes about your team. And it's not your team, not that interested. I mean, look. It's something baseball's going to have to figure out. But right now, I don't think that people realize that baseball's closer to the NFL in revenue than the NBA is to baseball. And that's not a small thing. From an age standpoint, I do think there's a problem going forward. Um, I think marketing plays into it. I do think that they've got to speed the game up. I do believe that. You know, I, I Look, here's a good example. I totally understand why you're doing it but like we did a game on i guess the saturday before the all-star break and it was a giants game and bruce bochi is a master at manipulating a bullpen oh yes they allowed two runs in nine innings and he used seven pitchers and i'm here to tell you i did the game that is a brutal watch yeah nobody wants to watch that the game just stopping and nothing happening so I think that they, again, my I have an extreme view on it. I think it's more about the pitchers, why it's slow. I don't think it's as much about the hitters. Um, I think you got to get a, a pitch clock. I think that all of this stuff with guys stepping out and pitchers taking forever. It's brutal. It's, just, it's an emphasis on bad habits, though. I, I do not believe, I, I do not, I understand comfort and routine, but I do not believe that a guy who has X talent level will not reach his true potential because he, he's being asked to work faster. Or he can't or, fix his batting gloves. That's right. That's right. So I, I, I just I think that for the game to come back to attracting uh, younger fans, I think uh, it's got to move at a, at a, at a hyper, more hyper pace. If you want a good example of it, I, I would give you this. Now, this is because I'm doing it. I do the Home Run Derby on the radio. And the Home Run Derby has been saved by putting a clock on it. Right. It is, in the last two years, I, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think it's a great event. The last two years have been unbelievably entertaining because it moves. They, I mean, in, in this year, I think it took 10 pitches. Right. So and it's moving and it's bang bang bang. I mean the ball's barely landing and they're and they're swinging again. And I think that the game needs to move a little more in that direction where it looks like it's on speed a little bit more um, to capture some of the younger generation. And I, I just think there are times when the people on the field and in front offices get stuck with this idea. Well, that's just the way we've always done it. Right. Like you need to get out of that mindset so that's I'm, my that's my thought i'm hopeful that 
the younger generation of stars that are starting to take over the game as far as being the new faces, the Bryce Harpers of the world, the Rizzos, the Chris Bryants might bring in those younger generational kids. I don't know whether they need to be marketed more, but I do like this notion of making baseball fun again, something that Bryce Harper has kind of taken on his back. The Cubs are even doing that with Joe Madden because of the way he's able to manage And I know you're doing that a little bit in the broadcast booth because we mentioned before we got on here, you're frequently a guest dropping by with Dan Lebitard's radio show. He's on 10 to 1 on ESPN nationally, and he's roped you into another one of his brilliant segments, if you will, where the fans are able to give you some input as to what you might say during a broadcast. How did that get started, and what have been some of the better things that you've been able to say or sneak in during one of your broadcasts? Yeah, I mean, it's not church, man. Like, let's have fun. I mean, it's funny. Like, Dan's one of my closest friends. You know, we got to be really good friends down in Miami when I worked down there. Right. And have, and have stayed really close. Um, so it was just something that we were talking about. You know, like, we are just hanging out. I think it was, like, February. Down in Miami, we're hanging, and we are like... You said, you know, I should have you on this year. I was like, you know, well, what would we call it? And then I was like, we should call it five minutes of hot garbage. And he's like, that's perfect. (laughs) And then it became like trying to infiltrate the broadcast. And, yeah, just finding sort of subtle, stupid things that, you know, their subtle, stupid things that, you know, his listeners would be able to catch on to. Um, I do think it's in the same vein. Like there needs to be some personality. Like this is not, it's not church, man. Like we got to stop taking it so seriously. Like it's, it's a game, you know, one of Dan's lines that's great is like, I hate hearing play the game the right way. I right. hate respect the game. Like Dan will always say, you know, are, are you supposed to respect shoots and ladders? What about Candyland? Are you supposed <laughs> to respect Candyland? Like, what are we talking about? Like it's a game. And like, there, David Ortiz is the best example. Like, he just plays with joy. He likes it. And here's the thing. He didn't learn to play the way you and I learned how to play. Right. And so it's fun. It's a celebration. He made it out of extreme poverty in the Dominican Republic. And, yeah, excuse him for being really excited that he hit a home run. And it has nothing to do with saying, bleep you, Mr. Pitcher. It's just he's excited. And everybody else needs to get over it. What's been your best home run call that you've been given from either Dan or someone else or one that you've been able to use so far? Man, I can't even remember. I know that I did. I had a uh, I mean, Chris Bryant. I think I had Baggett that one. Oh, no, actually, no. I would say it was the one we stole from the Hank Azaria. Get me a small Italian boat because that ball is gondola. I remember that one. I think, I, I think that that would be it. That's one of the greater segments. I think it's great what you're doing with Dan, and I think it's great what you're doing in general. I appreciate you coming onto the program, sir. It's been a pleasure getting to talk some baseball with you and learn about the intricacies of your job. And if you're not too busy, maybe in the winter months when you get a time to breathe, we might be able to have you back on. But keep up the good work. We'll look forward to listening to you in some of the more important games of the season and definitely in the postseason as well. And it's been a pleasure, as I mentioned before that. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. 
you can subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes and leave a kind rating or comment by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. You can also find episodes of The Bridge on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play, bringing you the best of sports on your Wednesday or Thursdays. In the next installment of The Bridge, the world is our oyster. We can take a look at Team USA and what they might do in the Rio Olympics. We can take a look in MLB and see where some of the races currently are in all the divisions or whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.